0: Ready to connect with the investment community here in Cleveland? Want to learn about the people, events, projects, and firms that are making a difference? Want all that but feel like you don't have the time? This is the show for you. Welcome to Guardians of Finance. Brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland and hosted by Matt McLaughlin, Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, Guardians of Finance will provide you with a chance to foster deeper connections and know what is getting the attention of Cleveland's investment community. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland and attend an educational or social event and find volunteer opportunities. And now, here's your host, Matt McLaughlin.
1: Welcome to the Guardians of Finance podcast. I am your host, Matt McLaughlin. In this episode, we talk with Danielle Williams. Managing Director and Equity Portfolio Manager at Wellington Management. Danielle grew up in Cleveland before college and her career took her to the East Coast where she now lives. In this conversation, Danielle talks about her work in credit underwriting and her passion for deep research and how it prepared her well for a career in buy-side investing. We also touch on her passion for travel and how her kids became interested in financial markets. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy this episode with Danielle Williams. Danielle, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for having me. Great. So let's just jump right in. And maybe just for our listeners who aren't familiar with you, go ahead and introduce yourself, maybe who you are and in your current position, and then maybe talk a little about your connection to Cleveland.
2: Great. So my name is Danielle Williams. I'm a portfolio manager on a small cap value team at Wellington, which is headquartered in Boston. I live in Boston. That's the Boston that you see behind me. And I grew up in Cleveland. I was born and raised in Cleveland Heights on the east side, went to Heights High School, which is the high school of the famous Kelsey brothers. So that's our most recent exciting claim to fame. Great. It's funny. So we've had now five podcasts, and
1: I think four of the five hail from the east side. So that is a completely unintentional bias there by the podcast, and maybe we need to do a better job reach out to westsiders. But maybe just talk us to us a little about you. Know, so you went to Cleveland Heights High School. Talk to us a little about your upbringing and maybe just zero to college experience with Cleveland.
2: Sure. You know, my whole family's from Cleveland. Actually, my parents went to the same high school I went to. My grandmother went to school in downtown Cleveland, so we have a long history of Clevelanders. But yeah, I grew up in Cleveland Heights, went to Noble Elementary School and Monticello Middle School, Cleveland Heights High School. And when I was in high school, they had this program that was called the Journey of Conscience. I was on a Holocaust Remembrance Committee, and it was run through the high school. And we went to Denmark, Czech Republic, And Poland and then ended in Israel visiting like all the concentration camps and learning about the history of the Holocaust. And that was my first time out of the country, my first time on a plane, actually, when I was 16. And I just fell in love with traveling, being outside of the country, learning about other cultures, and wanted to study international relations. So John, that's how I ended up at Johns Hopkins. I visited a bunch of schools in DC. I wanted to be close to DC. Johns Hopkins is in Baltimore. I don't think many people from my high school have gone to Hopkins. In fact, my mom was wearing sweatpants from the school and people were like, why are you wearing airport sweatpants? So so that's how I ended up at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, studying international relations. My father actually Co owned the Washington and Lee Service, which was a gas station and auto repair shop right across from the high school. So I would work there sometimes. I worked at, God, what was it called? The Bagel Store on Taylor growing up. I worked at, there was a gym at Severn Center. So I spent a lot of time in and around Cleveland. And when I graduated high school, I came back and worked in Cleveland at Key Bank for about a year before I did my last, I did a rotation program and my last rotation was in Boston. And then I stayed in Boston.
1: Got it. So when you were going to Hopkins, was finance something that you wanted to get into specifically, you said your international relations, or maybe was it the internship that kind of turned you on to, okay, maybe I want to pursue something like this, like after college. So
2: it's really interesting. Hopkins at the time didn't have a business degree. So I studied international relations and took economics and accounting courses. But when I was graduating, I was deciding, I studied in Russia one summer and Japan another summer and was really wanted to be in the CIA but then, they didn't they didn't accept me so i was deciding as i graduated between joining the peace corps or going back to cleveland and working at key bank in this management training program and i had been very broke all through college and i was like i really should learn about business and how to do business and i thought i could do the peace corps later in life that wasn't something i had to do right away so I did the management training program, and really, I had learned a lot about credit underwriting, and you rotate in different areas of the bank and I loved all of it so i you know it was real estate equity was my first one, and then I did securitization, and the last rotation was in Boston and structured finance so you know, when I talk to younger investors who are trying to figure out their careers all the time, and I tell them, don't think about what you want to do. Think about what parts of your job you really enjoy. And I love the spreadsheeting and the research. And so just tried to keep doing more of that throughout my life. So I started in credit and structured finance. And we did a lot of cool, like we were taking cash flows and structuring them and then selling these deals to investors. And you know i remember my first one was like oil and gas barges and so we were touring the barges and then i researched energy prices and how that tied to day rates and we would structure the cash flows and then talk to investors and try and sell them to investors and and i loved the research i did not like the lunches and the dinners and selling them to investors and one of my good friends worked at an investment firm and said are you I was talking to her about what I loved and what I didn't like. And she's like, have you ever thought about equity research? And you know, I was studying for the CFA, so I knew how to value equities technically, but had spent most of my time in in credit. And they were hiring a small cap analyst. And so I interviewed there and they liked the deep research. That was the strategy was do deep research on small cap companies. And so I got that job. Somehow I convinced them that the credit (laughs) research was relevant to small cap. And the idea was, you know, go where other investors don't go, find companies that aren't well covered and figure out what the value should be. And then we called it like trust, but verify and do additional research to decide whether that value could be realized, talk to their competitors, their clients, other people within the company to see if they're motivated to make it happen. And I remember I was like, Kind of five or six weeks in, I was researching a medical device company and talking to their competitors and their customers and people who were running a study on the medical device company. And I was like, this is the right job for me. <laughs> so I it was never anything I knew I wanted to do. I just kept doing more of what I liked and then found something that just seemed to match what I love doing, which is really creating a mosaic around a company.
1: Sure, sure. It's so interesting. So where did you learn about the CFA program? Was it, were other people taking it maybe at key? Was it something you learned about through friends or how did you learn about it?
2: Yeah, it's funny. I bumped into one of my good friends from high school who I'd lost touch with through college and everything at a gym in Boston and we reconnected and she was studying for the CFA and someone said to me, you know, it can be great if you are not sure if you want to go to business school and i didn't think i could afford i had a lot of student debt i didn't think i could afford to take the time off to go to business school i was like that seems great and so i started studying for it i actually love the studying i mean it's funny in my office you can't see this but i have all my cfa books still <laughs> so i'm not sure that they still have textbooks but i like read the textbooks and i basically trained myself because i didn't learn it in college so it was kind of a from scratch and and I really enjoyed the studying. I mean, I studied a lot, but I enjoyed it. And I felt like I was learning new things. So that's really just a friend told me she was doing it. And I was like, this seems like something I should do. And here I am.
1: <laughs> sure. I also have the CFA books in my office. And I feel like it's a badge of honor. It's like, no, no, no. I put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into things. I am not getting rid of them. And and every once in a while, I do refer back to them if, if something comes up. But I feel like many charter holders are like, nope, I'm not getting rid of those. Not doing it.
2: Yes. Anything. Yeah. But there's no room in your house, though. So your spouse won't let you keep them there. So you have to bring them into the office.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. I've gotten the question, like, why do we still have these? Like, because I want them around.
2: <laughs> yeah. Great. You may need them someday.
1: Yes. Yes. So you're working for Key. And, and were you based in Boston with Key or were you based in Cleveland?
2: So I started in Cleveland. I was in Cleveland for nine months. So my first two rotations were in Cleveland. And then my last one was in Boston. A lot of my friends from college were in Boston. And I was looking to see if they had a group in Boston. And then I had done securitization as my second rotation. I loved it. And structured finance is a lot of the same concepts as securitization. So I convinced them to let me do my last rotation here. And then you're supposed to get hired by one of the teams. and, And they hired me after that.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Have you been in Boston that entire time? Maybe kind of take us through after Key or what? maybe what led you to look outside of Key and then the progression for a few years?
2: Yeah. So I've been in Boston this whole time since then. And I really love Boston. It's funny, the first couple, probably the first five years that I was here, all my friends were Midwesterners who had relocated to Boston. But my husband is from Western Mass. So we kind of stayed. So in structured finance, I was talking about how I loved the credit part of it, but didn't love the sales part. And that was how I almost serendipitously learned about this small cap position at, it was independence investments. And I worked on that team for eight years And we ended up getting merged into Leemunder Capital. And Leemunder Capital had a similar fund. So they felt like it didn't make sense to continue to have both products. So they shut our product down. So I had to find another job. And I was a generalist. Our team was generalist with subsector specialties. And mine was financials and consumer. And so Eaton Vance was hiring a financial small cap analyst. So The timing worked out great. I was happy to have it. It was the first time I'd ever been at a real big firm. I'd always been at boutique firms. And that was great because I could leverage some of their credit investors for help in financials. Always helps to get their perspective. So I was at Eaton Vance for four years. And then I got a call from Wellington about a small cap position at Wellington.
0: Sure.
1: Contrast kind of the big firm or working for a big firm versus a boutique, and sounds like Munder and Eaton Vance, obviously big and small. But Wellington, I think, and tell me if I'm wrong in this, since since you're there now, it seems like a big firm from people-wise, but kind of operates like a boutique. So maybe just maybe compare and contrast some of those those company experiences you've had.
2: Yeah, it's actually a great point. You know, boutiques. It's exciting because you are in control of your own product and you're building your own book, but it's also The resources are a little more constrained sometimes and access to research can be like if you just reading sell side reports, sometimes, you know, it's more challenging to get access to that. Not that in small cap, you don't leverage the sell side a lot, but it's just company access is different. Eaton Vance, it was All of a sudden, as a small cap investor, you could own a decent amount of a company and you could really be long-term holders, have governance conversations. But Wellington, you're right. It's a collection, we call ourselves a collection of boutiques. So it's a little bit of both. It's like exciting because you have your product that you're trying to grow but and it's small, but then you have access to central research and industry analysts that know their sector very well and are very deep. So it is a great... I had always wanted to work at wellington you know it's a well known firm in boston i would share meetings with analysts from wellington and think god they ask really good questions <laughs> and so so when they called i was really excited about the opportunity even though i was happy at eden vance i would have stayed there if i hadn't gotten the call this it was a really great opportunity
1: Sure. I know I have. And maybe you have as well realized it is such a small industry. And especially in Boston, I feel like you probably know a lot of the different firms and the people at the different firms. And you you run a lot of the same circles. And I think that's even true even across the country, it, it feels like so. Yes. Totally kind You of always have to that. be
2: nice, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. Never make anyone <laughs> mad. The yes. best career advice: don't make people mad. <laughs> exactly. So you, you worked on something like small cap strategies the entire career. Given your affinity for kind of travel and and international, you ever tried to dabble into international markets, or is, is small cap always kind of had your heart, and you've always wanted to stay there?
2: So I love to travel. Try to travel as much as possible with my family. And Wellington has offices around the globe. And is very focused on being integrated with those offices. So I have traveled to visit our offices in Asia and our offices in London. And I've met with managers of US based companies that are located globally when I've traveled to just build up the mosaic. But, you know, it's interesting. I've really loved small cap. It's kind of met that need of, you know, doing the deep research and filling the mosaic. But I do love talking to our global investors about what they're seeing and trying to apply that to what I'm seeing in the US. But in small cap, there's you know thousands of small cap companies. There's a lot of opportunity here in small cap versus you know feeling the need to go global.
1: Yeah, you, know, you, you mentioned your family and obviously you have a, a really accomplished career. Talk a little about kind of balancing that creating and growing a family with obviously advancing in your career and how you've done that, or maybe some keys to success there and maybe some challenges along the way, as I'm sure there were.
2: Yeah, (laughs) it is hard. I mean, so I have three girls, they're 14, 10 and seven, and the industry is evolving a lot. And, you know, there are, I think from when I had my first child, I was like, pumping in a closet, you know, to now there are like mother's rooms and refrigerators and sinks. And so it's, it's amazing to see, you know, I had three months, I think some of that was unpaid at my first maternity leave. And now women at Wellington who go out on leave, I think get four to six months. So it's just been a real, it's great to watch the evolution happen. And my husband, he's tended to work at startups, which you know, start a little bit later, he works later, but we've worked it out where I leave early, he leaves later, takes the kids to school. And I usually come home, you know, at six and he'll come home a little later, come home and then work into the night. So startups, you work a lot, but where you work and when you work is a lot more flexible. So, but he's from the moment our first daughter was born, I continue to travel and see companies. So I think, ultimately he feels very lucky because he was forced to figure it out and figure out how to take care of them and they're all very close to him. And so so I think it's a benefit to put a little bit more on your how to have a spouse who shares the responsibilities. And you almost have to. It's not really a choice. And so that's been really important is having a a spouse who's an equal partner. It's been hard not having family around. So there are many times that I wish I lived closer to my siblings. I'm one of four but we're all spread out. My parents are in Cleveland. My husband's parents are in Western mass, so no one's really like they can come in for like real emergencies, but just like, hey, can someone pick the kids up? You know we've really had to figure out how to juggle that with nannies. so we've had a lot of good babysitters and nannies and when I had a baby, they would wake up at five and I would take care of them and then leave at six fifteen for the office and then I'd you know and I'd walk by young investors at like 8.30 eating their breakfast. (laughs) And I would think, God, I've lived a whole day and (laughs) you're just getting started, you know? So, and it's you know, investing is, you really have to keep your, you have to have a stable mind. You have to be able to think clearly. And so it's taken a lot of work compartmentalizing over time, you know, like leaving a screaming kid, coming in, sitting down with your coffee, taking a deep breath and being like, okay, What's blowing up today? So, (laughs) (laughs) Sure. But I also try and include my kids as much as I can in what I do. So we talk about red days and green days. And I talk to them when I have a stock that hasn't worked and how I've managed through it. And I think it's good for them to see me fail sometimes and talk about the ones that have blown up and how I'm going to do better next time, you know?
1: Sure. Sure. My next question was going to be, and you've already basically answered, any kind of good horror stories of like young kids and balancing their career? Because we all have them. I have two young kids. I have a couple, not that this podcast is about me, but so that's really good about kind of the coming in with the young professionals and you've already lived a day. I think all of us with kids can identify with that, that have a corporate job.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: So how did you get your kids interested in talking about finance? And it sounds like you get into some details with them, which is awesome. I feel like more kids need that, that more that, hey, what's going on in the world from a financial perspective? Like, How did you get them interested in that originally?
2: I think they're just interested in in what I do, where, where I go every day and what happens. And then with COVID and the pandemic, I was home. And so they would come up to the attic where I was working, and I would say, oh, it's been a rough day today. Like, look at the reds and the gray. And then we would talk about what it means. My mother-in-law gave them some stock for Christmas one year. So so we talk about that and we talk about how much they've made and dividends they've been paid. And so, you know, they're not desperate to invest on their own yet, which I hope to see. But I think just you, know, I didn't grow up talking about stocks around the table. I didn't really, I learned about the stock market as an adult. And I would love for them. To learn about it more at an earlier age. But it's funny, my seven-year-old was on the ski lift with a woman I actually used to work with. And she said, so what does your mom do? And she said, oh, she's an investor. And I was so impressed. that, my, And that's how the woman put together that we knew each other. But I was so impressed that my seven-year-old actually was listening to me talk about what I do. But at the end of every day, because I'm gone all day, so I don't really see them after school, I asked them like their rose, thorn, and seed and also if there's anything they failed at. And so that's a good way when they ask me what mine was on the rare day they show interest in what I did, <laughs> then I can talk about the failures.
1: That's awesome. And I think I might steal that one from you. And I have a kid going to kindergarten next year, the rose thorn and what was the rose thorn and what was it?
2: Seed. So the seed is what they're looking forward to.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I might steal that one. Thanks. So you say you travel a lot with your family. Where have been the, well, maybe a couple trips pre COVID that were great with your family? And then maybe if you've gotten back to traveling post COVID, love to hear about some of the travels with the five of you.
2: Yeah. So it's interesting. I think it changes as the kids get older. You know, our first trips were like to the Bahamas and beachy type places, which they were great. Aruba, which is always sunny, the weather's perfect, and just going to the beach, but also seeing other cultures and explaining to them like that the world looks different in all different countries. Post-COVID, we went to Barcelona last year, which was great. And that was the first time we'd done an overnight flight with them. And it was really good for them to be in a country where other people don't speak the language, you know, because you're exposed to people in the US that don't speak our language that well. And you tend to Either you like you could be judgmental about them not knowing the language or not, you know, when you're in another country, you're like, whoa, it's really hard to try and like figure out where the bathroom is when you can't speak the language. So and then tomorrow, we're actually all going to Israel. So that's a 10 hour overnight flight. So we'll see how we do with that.
1: Yeah, that will be a fun trip, I bet. (laughs) Yeah. So you've lived in Boston for quite some time. And I'm guessing because you've lived there for so long, you kind of fell in love with that city and that area. Maybe compare and contrast Boston to Cleveland just from your perspective. We'd love to hear that.
2: Yeah, I often wish that I had found like that perfect job in Cleveland and stayed there because I think the lifestyle is so great. People are so nice. The traffic's manageable. You can get a great house. My sister lived in Cleveland up until about a year ago. My parents are still there. So I go back every year. And so, you know, I think Boston is... Like I take the train into work because the traffic is terrible. But it's also a beautiful city. It's close to mountains. I never skied really, but my kids ski. My husband grew up skiing. There's the ocean, which is close. So that's nice. There are a lot of close drives that you can do great things. And the city has a lot, like it has a lot of theater, but it's also very manageable. You know, I travel a lot to New York and I come back. And I'm like, oh, thank God I'm back in Boston, you know. But Cleveland has so many neat secret spots, you know, like the West Side Market and Sugar Falls and all these cool areas that you can discover, Little Italy. So I love them both. They are different. I think the lifestyle is just a little bit maybe easier in Cleveland in terms of commuting. And, you know, you can live almost with big lawns and everything and still have manageable drive to work. Whereas like my lawn and I live in Newton, which is like a 20-minute drive. It's tiny, and it's, but I didn't want much of a commute. So you have to make those trade-offs, or I don't think you have to make them as much in Cleveland.
1: Sure. And how often do you get back to Cleveland to see your parents and maybe some siblings if they're still around?
2: So at least once a year, we have every Thanksgiving. Actually, it's been happening since 1960. My mom's family started these reunions at Thanksgiving where cousins... Come and we do Thanksgiving and then we do like a Hanukkah celebration the day after. So we've been doing that every year. And then I usually try and get there one other time with the kids. My kids love going to Cleveland. They, you know, we go to Euclid Beach sometimes and we come. So definitely once a year where we see all my extended family and siblings. And then usually one other time where we, you know, usually in the summer where we can come in and see my parents and go to the Winking Lizard. Sure. <laughs>
1: Is that the favorite spot in Cleveland to go eat is you go to the Winking Lizard?
2: I love the Winking Lizard. I mean, so I lived in Cleveland after college for nine months, I lived in Coventry and we would walk to the Winking Lizard and they had that like beer around the world thing that you could enter where you tried all different beers and then you got a jacket if you did them all. And I managed to do that in nine months, but I love the Winking Lizard. The food is great, but however they hire people to work there, they're so friendly and then, It doesn't hurt that there's an iguana there for my kids.
1: (laughs) Mine too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It is is nice to have the entertainment. Any kind of piece of advice for maybe younger professionals that are listening to this that maybe grew up in Cleveland and have considered living elsewhere? And I know you've kind of touched on a few things, I guess, throughout the conversation, there may be a piece of advice, but anything that kind of comes top of mind that you would relate for someone thinking about, hey, do I want to live in Cleveland? or Do I want to go outside and go to a city like Boston or go somewhere else? Any thoughts there?
2: I think it's important to really explore the job market in Cleveland if you want to be in Cleveland for the longer term. I think it's it can be challenging once you move to get back there. Do you know what I mean? So I know people do it, and but I think it's once you get in a career track in a town and then, you know, I met my spouse here, it's really, it can be tricky to find your way back. And I think there are a lot of opportunities in Cleveland. There are so many people committed to building up the business scene in Cleveland, that it's worth really fully exploring it.
1: For sure. Well, that's kind of all the long-form questions I had, or at least that I can think of. Would you be ready and open to kind of a a rapid-fire question and answer or ask some things both personal and maybe about Cleveland that we can go through real quick? Sure. Sure. So the first question, do you have a nickname? Uh,
2: (laughs) So, yeah. So my family calls me Danny. Some of my college friends and friends here call me D. And then some of the people I work with call me (laughs) (laughs) D-dubs. So Many nicknames, I guess.
1: Sure. Sure. D-dubs. I I like that one. That's a good one. Favorite hobby.
2: I do like to exercise. So I like to run. I like to read a lot, but I feel like I don't have much time for any hobbies. (laughs) This job is, I mean, it's lucky I like to read because with this job, you spend a lot of time reading. So you know, I hope to get more hobbies as I, when I retire. You ever ran the Boston Marathon, given that you're there? I did. I did run the Boston Marathon. That was actually my favorite one.
1: Oh, cool. What was your time?
2: <laughs> oh, God. I mean, it was like four hours and 10, 15 minutes. It was not good. <laughs> it was <laughs> slow and steady won the race, you know?
1: There you go. You crossed the finish line. That's what matters. <laughs> yes. Have you run it? I have not run the Boston. I have run the Chicago.
2: Yes. I ran the Chicago. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. I've heard about the Boston one and Chicago being so flat. The Boston one very much intimidated me. The fact that there was hills. I'm like, no, no, no. 26.2 miles. I can't do the hills. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> not that I was good at it or could have qualified anyway. But yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I didn't. I actually didn't qualify. I worked for a company that was a sponsor of the marathon. So I went through the back door.
1: Oh, cool. Best book about investing or finance?
2: One of my favorites is The Outsiders by William Thorndike, mostly because it really changed the way I thought about the conversations I have with management teams. It really talks about capital allocation. And that's so important and the way you should think about it. And also, the companies that are highlighted are companies that I would not have thought of as attractive companies up until I read the book.
1: Maybe you've already answered this one a little bit with your career desire initially, but profession you would be in if you weren't a small cap value portfolio manager.
2: Oh, for sure. Something global. Like I'd be a, you know, I'd work at some embassy somewhere. Sure. Did you watch Homeland? Yes. Yes. All those shows. I love them.
1: (laughs) One of my favorites. Bucket list travel destination that you haven't been to yet.
2: So this is surprising, but I've never been to Hawaii and I really want to go there. So I want to take my family. You didn't ask this, but my bucket list is take my family to Japan, but I really want to just go to Hawaii.
1: (laughs) It's you know, stop there about halfway ish and have a nice beach vacation right. and go to Japan. That'd be right. a good one. Yeah.
2: Good point. Great idea. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Any hidden talents?
2: Hidden talents. I played a lot of piano when I was younger. Then I've started to play again as my kids have picked it up. So I'm not I'm not sure I'm talented there yet, but I think it's probably surprising if people knew that.
1: <laughs> You're in the office in Boston today, but you prefer office or do you prefer being remote?
2: I really like a mix. I think the hybrid has been life changing. You know, I can see my kids in the morning, work all day, but then it's great to be in the office and actually see people face to face.
1: Do you still maintain your allegiances to Cleveland sports teams?
2: I don't. So when I was in college, the Browns left Cleveland. Oh, OK. Yeah. So I had to find another team. And I really thought Drew Bledsoe was cute. So, <laughs> I, so I became a Patriots fan before I even lived here. And I, now I'm a complete sellout.
1: Ah, your timing is pretty good because after Drew Bledsoe was there and Tom Brady, I think we all know kind of the, the story of what happened then. So,
2: Yeah. Yeah. But that was not why. <laughs> it, was <laughs> not, it was because the Browns left, which was really sad.
1: Sure. Sure. Well, you avoided a lot of disappointment with the Browns. So <laughs> Any hidden gems in Cleveland that a lot of people may not know about? I think most people know about the Winking Lizard. So that doesn't qualify. But anything maybe from your upbringing or area your parents live in that is kind of a hidden gem that people should check out?
2: So for me, I think Euclid Beach is a hidden gem. I don't know if you've been there, but I grew up going to Fairport Harbor. We would drive like 45 minutes away. And when my sister lived in Cleveland, she would take us to Euclid Beach. And it's a great beach there's the huge Cleveland sign. There's great facilities. And it's like really close to the east side of Cleveland. So I don't know if you've been there, but I feel like that's a hidden gem. Is that a hidden gem?
1: I'm going to maybe generalize here. And I'm not sure if I'm correct in this generalization, but I feel like it's a hidden gem for maybe younger people. I want to say, well, this is just my personal bias. My mother-in-law talks about Yucca Beach all the time and how she went there as a as a kid and that was the place to be. And I feel like the generation, you know, I'm, I'm mid thirties and my generation maybe doesn't have those kind of memories of Yugo Beach. So maybe for the millennial generation, which I begrudgingly put my part up, that's a little bit of a hidden gem.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You need to go back there.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. Always up for taking the kids to the beach. It's great entertainment.
2: And then also Tommy's. I don't know if Tommy's is a hidden gem still. It's a little like luncheon Middle Eastern place on Coventry that is delicious, great milkshakes great sandwiches.
1: I have not heard of that one either. So that definitely, at least in my mind, qualifies as a hidden gem. So, Well, that is all the rapid fire questions I have. Danielle, really appreciate you coming on the podcast and great conversation. And yeah, thanks for
2: coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Matt.
0: You've been listening to Guardians of Finance, brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head on over to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland, attend an educational or social event and find volunteer opportunities. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Guardians of Finance.